God, today we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask for healing. In a day where we are so connected to the world, set us apart. In a time of great unrest and uncertainty, we ask for holiness. So search our hearts, renew our minds, and help us love like you love us. Make us holy. Use us to do your will on this earth. God, today we ask that you would restore us. Gather up the bits and pieces of our souls and mend them with your loving hand. Search out those parts that we try to hide from you. Today, God, we invite you in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. We trust you. May we be set apart for you. May we be holy. Well, again, good morning. It is exciting to have you here. We are in the final uh, stage or the final sermon of our series on Second Peter, and I pray that it has been a blessing but also a challenge to you as we look at Peter's words and the conviction that he has in drawing us closer to the Lord but also being wise and anticipating false teaching. I want to take a moment, and we're going to be looking at the last couple of verses in chapter 3, and essentially Peter's conclusion to this second letter. But before we do, I want to take a moment and remind us why Peter is writing this letter and the context of what it's written in. Uh, Peter is most likely imprisoned in Rome. It is in between somewhere of 64 to 67 AD. Uh, And this is his swan song, for lack of a better word. Uh, He most likely knows that this imprisonment will be sort of the final aspect and that uh, soon he will be martyred for his faith. The reason that he knows this, we actually discover in this letter, is because of the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John were led up to the mountain and saw Jesus transformed in his glory. Next to Jesus was Moses and Elijah, demonstrating indeed that Jesus was God, the Messiah, but also in the content of what was stated, Jesus told Peter that he would be martyred for his faith. We also know, as church tradition tells us, that Peter was crucified. Most likely, as again, church tradition says, he was crucified, but upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the manner that his Lord and Savior was. That's the context that is being written here. Now, the two letters of First and Second Peter, the first letter, Peter is essentially saying quite similar things, but he is guarding against external or outside influences from the church and guarding and trying to essentially keep the purity or the message of the gospel. In Second Peter, what he is doing is he is speaking to internal forces within the church. So people that have come into the church and are teaching false doctrine. 
the two big things that they're saying essentially is, they're saying, uh, number one, do you really think that the day of the Lord or Jesus is going to come again? Now, we've heard that you have said this, but it's been some time and Jesus hasn't come back. So, do we really trust this? And Peter is moving forward and saying that those individuals who are denying that are false teachers. The other aspect that Peter is combating is sort of the licentious lifestyle that some of these teachers are encouraging. They are essentially saying, hey, we're saved by grace through faith, and because we're saved by grace through faith, we are free to do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want, so we can live our lives essentially in liberation. And essentially what Peter is saying is, is that while we're saved by grace through faith, may I remind all of you of what Paul has said in his teachings. We're going to discover that in just a few minutes. Where essentially Paul is saying, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And it's followed up by the Greek words, meuk genoto, which is essentially by no means or absolutely not. And so what Paul is exhorting is, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. The joy of this means that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how far you might feel apart from God, you can come to him and cry out to him for salvation. And God is there. And God will save. But on the opposite side, what we discover, not only in the writings of Paul, but in 2nd and 1st Peter, is that that's not the only thing that we do. After having been saved, as we read particularly in the first chapter of 2nd Peter, we are to add to our faith goodness, holiness, righteousness, or, as the book of Galatians says, the fruit of the Spirit. And so the challenge here that Peter is combating is individuals saying, number one, hey, we don't need to worry about the day of the Lord. Come on, that's just a farce. Jesus isn't going to come back. Come on, there's not going to be judgment. And also with that saying, you know what? Now that you're saved by grace through faith, you can do what you want, how you want, where you want, and when you want to. And Peter is combating this false teaching. In the first part of that chapter, what we discover, again, as I've said so often, is Peter is exhorting three things. He starts off and he says, number one, we're to have a real faith. A real faith means trusting in our Lord and Savior Jesus, a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Essentially, he's saying it isn't religion. As coming to church is great, the church, meaning the building, isn't what saves you. Sitting in a seat and listening to the pastor speak isn't what saves you. Doing ministry, as good as it is, isn't what saves you. It's not religion, it's relationship. And so friends, this morning what I want to encourage you in is the first thing that we must understand for any of this to make sense is do you have a real relational faith with Jesus Christ? Now the next thing that we see is not only are we to have a real faith, but then Peter in the first part of this chapter says we're to have a growing faith. Add to 
The last time that I checked, not being the greatest is math, but addition means that you have one thing and you add to it another. And what we're adding to the faith, as, G, or as Peter exhorts, is goodness, holiness, righteousness, or being set apart for God. It's essentially a statement about sanctification, turning away from the world and toward Jesus. Sanctification is the aspect that after we've come to Christ, if this is where we are, and let's say that these are our desires, which are of the world, me, myself, and I, when we come to Christ through the cross, realizing that we've been saved by grace through faith, which is a wonderful thing, anyone can receive the gift of Jesus by believing. However, after having believed, the question is, do we still stay here? Do we still keep our eyes focused on what our desires were pre-Jesus? Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? By no means. So little by little, sanctification means turning toward holiness or being set apart. And so the question is, friends, that after having come to Jesus, how is your life different? Is your trajectory in life different? Are your passions in life different? And the difference is, are they now not for you, but are they for God's kingdom and his glory and his honor? As you walk with Jesus, do your eyes turn more toward the kingdom rather than your own little k kingdom? That's what he's talking about. Add to our faith. And then he says, okay, in order to do this, you have to have a grounded faith. So you have to have a real faith. You have to have a growing faith. But you have to have a grounded faith. And the grounded faith is this, the word of God. He essentially says, look, we have the words of the prophets, and that is essentially the Old Testament. He's speaking back to the words that are in the Old Testament. But we now also have the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And that's what we're trusting in. And so the next question is this. If we have a real faith, if we have a growing faith, and then all of a sudden our faith is challenged, where do we turn? Do we turn to pop culture? Do we turn to the latest Christian book that's the best seller in the bookstore? Or do we turn to the Word of God and use that as our foundation to determine whether or not the best-selling Christian book in the bookstore is Christian? Friends, I have a, a friend who now is uh, at Denver Seminary and did his doctorate, but back when we were at Dallas Seminary, his master's thesis was what he did was he went and took the 10 most popular Christian books of that year. And he read through them and examined them for doctoral and orthodox content, simple things. Doctrine of the Trinity, reliability of the Word of God, just foundational things. And what he discovered was that out of those books, five of them weren't anywhere near 
doctrinal Christianity. That should tell us something. Now, please hear me. I'm not trying to freak you out and not go to the Christian bookstore. But what I'm going to tell you is this. When you do go to the Christian bookstore and you look and a book like The Shack is sitting there and you pull that off the shelf, feel free to read it. I'm not afraid of you doing so. But what I'm going to tell you is this. Don't get your theology from The Shack. Get your theology and your belief and your groundedness through the Word of God so that you can combat false teaching. And so, Peter says that in this first part of the chapter, then he goes into chapter 2, and that's where he's essentially explaining what the challenges are, which are the two things that I talked about. Essentially, not believing in the second coming, or the fact that Jesus is going to come again, and then licentious living. Uh, it is a doctrine, for those of you that are interested, known as antinomianism. If you want to write that down, you're welcome to do so. Antinomianism or antinomos means lawlessness. It's a false doctrine. Antinomianism says that because we have been, quote unquote, saved by Jesus Christ, we are no longer subject to the law. We're free. We can do whatever we want. We can live our lives however we want. And the reality of this is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So we are still subject to it, but because of what Christ has done, we are free in Jesus to move toward holiness. But it isn't a license to just live however we want, whenever we want, whenever we want to do things. And one of the things that I want to encourage us in and challenge us in is simply this. I've said it before, and please hear me, this is not a comment to all megachurches. I'm not against the megachurch. I've had some individuals ask me that specifically, and I'm not against it. But I am questioning the following thing. What we see is in and around the 1980s, the rise of what we would call the American megachurch. Pre-1980, it was extremely rare that a church would have over a thousand people. In and around 1980, we see what we call the seeker-sensitive movement beginning, and it springs out, and the next thing you know, over essentially the next 20 years, 1980 to 2000, we have megachurches springing up everywhere. Now, a lot of the megachurches have done great things. That's why I'm not against them. But my question is simply this. In this, we now are seeing churches of 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people, and they're springing up everywhere. And the one question that I ask is simply this. If all of these churches are springing up everywhere, then why is American morality so depraved right now? Shouldn't there be a difference? Shouldn't the church be set apart? Shouldn't people see a difference in who we are? And the reason for that is, yes, absolutely, in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin, it is for everyone. Come as you are. A sinner in need of a Savior. However, after having come as you are, and receiving the love and the mercy and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nowhere 
in God's word does it say, stay as you are. It says, be transformed because you are a new creation. And friends, so lovingly, that's what's being exhorted in this passage. Peter is saying, look, are you different? Are you being set apart? Are your eyes looking toward the kingdom? Or is the Christian faith simply something that you're doing in sort of an active moment, but with no heart or no real relationship with Jesus? And so we get into the third chapter, and that's where Peter essentially really digs deep in the coming of the Lord. And he kind of says, hey, here's what I want to tell you. The coming of the Lord is going to be a big deal. It's a real thing. Last week I talked about that movie that I told you, The Day After, essentially the movie where uh, the world is essentially under a nuclear attack, and then essentially the idea is the day after. And I don't know about you, I've said this before, but um, you know, movies over Halloween, some of the horror stories, et cetera, et cetera, I'm just going to, you know, I kind of laugh. I'm, I, I, they don't really scare me. I'm kind of like, oh, you know, okay, there's number two and number three, and how many people are going to die in this? Oh, look, you know. And I kind of feel like it's the Geico commercial where those people run, and they're like, oh, you know, let's run away, and there's a perfectly good car, and they're like, no, let's go behind the chainsaws. And there's the, you know, there's the guy, and he's just kind of going, oh, geez, you know, whatever. But that movie, I'll be honest with you, like for six months, I'm not kidding, Nightly, I would wake up and I would look out over Boulder Valley. That's where we lived. And I was terrified. I, I don't know about some of you, but I know that some kids that watched it were terrified. I was. And I would kind of sit there and I would wonder, my goodness, what would happen? And the reason that I bring this up is the day of the Lord, explained by Peter, is like the day after times nine million. It's where the earth and the heavens all of the cosmos are destroyed and melted away by fire. That's a big deal. That should bring terror, but also excitement to our hearts for those of us that are in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the reason that I bring this up is this isn't a myth. This isn't a fable. This isn't some far off thing. It is going to happen. Now when? I have no idea. All I can tell you is, is we're closer today than we were yesterday, and we will be closer tomorrow, if the Lord allows, than we are today. But it is going to happen. And that's one of the things that Peter is saying, is if the promises of God have been made, if we look back to the Old Testament and we see how God has maintained his promises, if we see that he has brought us the Messiah, if we know that the Messiah is Jesus, if Jesus has died on a cross and forgiven us of our sins, and now we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but we are exhorted toward holy living, and now Jesus has, as we see in Scripture, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again. If all of these things have happened in the past, why won't this happen in the future? That's what Peter is saying. And so we pick up in these final verses with the following exhortation. And so in that, I offer the following question, which is, in view of Peter's concerns over false teaching, how should we live our lives 
as we anticipate Christ's return. And so the first question, friends, that I ask you is this. Are you anticipating Christ's return? Not freaking out, okay? I don't want this to be the day after. I don't want everybody leaving here traumatized. But is that on your radar at all? Is the return of Jesus on your radar at all as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or is it something that's just kind of, yeah, I don't know, you know, whatever. And interesting enough, the people in this book are essentially scoffers. And the word scoffing means that they are denying the holiness of God. They are essentially denying the word and the profession of the promise that God has made. God has said, I will come again. And they're saying, no, he won't. And so, friends, what I want to ask you is, first and foremost, are you anticipating Christ's return? And then in view of that, how are you living your life? And that's what Peter exhorts us in. Again, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be picking up in verse 14. So then, okay, this is summative. After all that I've kind of laid out, he says, okay, now that we have this, so then, this is what I want to exhort you in or to do. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, okay, so again, it's not me. He's saying, since you are looking, are you looking forward to this? Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow, grow, Notice that. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And interestingly enough, I don't know exactly, but this is the final penning that we know of Peter. And we know that shortly after, Peter was crucified, most likely, as church tradition says, upside down. And so Peter is going to great lengths for those who he cares for. The first thing is, is uh, right here where he says, so then, dear friends, it's the idea of beloved. It is a deep, intimate relationship with members of the church. It isn't just passing. It is an exhortation with deep feeling. And so as Peter says this, and he says, how should we live our lives? The first thing that we see, particularly in verse 14, is that we should make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. 
And I want to start off, and, and when I talk about this, this is not legalism, okay? I don't want you thinking that any of you have to look like me, talk like me, act like me, be a pastor, etc., etc. God has you in the place that he needs you. And you can do things that I can't in the context of where he has put you in. But the other side of this is, what effort are you making So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, number one, are you looking forward to it? Number two, then, if you are, make no effort. Make a little bit of effort. Make a good try. Give it the old college attaboy. Make the effort that, hey, man, I'm doing better than the person sitting next to me, so that's got to count for something. Make every effort. Friends, when you wake up in the morning, are you making every effort in the grace of God who loves you and is slow to anger, but are you making every effort to be found spotless and blameless? None of us are perfect. We're never going to be perfect this side of glory. But my question and the exhortation that Peter is giving is, where is your heart as you walk with the Lord day by day, are you more and more making every effort to be found spotless and blameless? Or are you essentially perverting the grace of God and saying, I can continue in sin so that grace may increase? May uk genoto by no means. So friends, praise God for his grace, which is new each and every morning. God is a loving God. God is a caring God. God is a wonderful God. He is slow to anger and long-suffering. But God is also righteous and judge. Don't ever forget that. And so, friends, what I want to ask you is this. Are you making every effort to be found spotless and blameless? And are you at peace with him? Here's how you find peace with God. You set yourself apart for him. And one of the things that I want to tell you is simply this. Guys... This isn't this church. This is statistically speaking. Okay, so I don't know. But what I do know is statistically speaking, men and their struggle with pornography is no better in the church than it is outside of it. I'm not being legalistic, but what I'm asking is why? The church should be different. The church needs to be different. And one of the things that I've often heard, and I believe it, is the church is the hospital for the sick. Absolutely. Amen. Praise God. But the hospital is a place for the sick to get well. 
And a doctor's job is not to say, you're sick, keep being sick. It's all good. The doctor's job is to say, you're sick. Let me love you and show you the cure in how to get better. And the cure in how to get better is to set yourself apart for God day by day by day. Making every effort, active voice. This is not passive. Passive voice means that essentially the action is placed upon us. This, make every effort, is active, meaning we do the action. We are responsible for that effort. And so, friends, the other thing that I want to tell you is this. Your pastors will do what they can to encourage you. Your pastors will do what they can to teach and preach the Word of God. But your pastors are not responsible for your effort. It's up to you. And so, lovingly, guys, are you making every effort? Are you looking at those things and saying, you know what, this is destructive to my life. This is destructive to my family. This is destructive to my character. Or are you going along with the world in lawlessness? It's okay. No worries. We'll let grace increase. Are you making effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him? One of the things that I find interesting in Philippians chapter 4, verses 5b through 7, it says, The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but by everything in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Beautiful verse. And then it continues on, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, oftentimes we take this verse and it's good, but we say, oh, just go to Jesus and you're going to have peace. Notice what's being stated. You'll go to Jesus and guard your heart and mind. Guard your heart and mind and you will have peace in Jesus. Friends, if you're living lawlessly and you're wondering why you don't have peace, it's because you're living outside of the law, which has been fulfilled by Jesus. But we are called toward holy living. He continues on in verses 15 and 16, and it says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul wrote. Now, a couple of things. Praise God for his patience. We read, essentially, that he's long-suffering. And that's important because God, essentially, as we've seen even earlier, desires no one to be apart from him. He wants all to come to him. But the reality of this is some will choose not to. And so... The other thing that I would encourage us in that we see in these next two verses is that we should not twist the scriptures to fit our own desires. Rather, we should submit to them. Friends, one of the greatest challenges in the educational system today that happened in around 1930 is this idea of read the text and tell us what it says to you. 
No, you read the text and you understand authorial intent. What did the author mean when it was written? The author is the one who determines. Interestingly enough, in Hebrews it says, Jesus Christ is the what? Author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. This isn't read and what does it say to you. It's read and what is being said by the author and are you submitting to the authority of the word. He says, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means our salvation as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you with the wisdom of God gave him. Peter essentially is speaking to the letters that have been written by Paul. For those of you that are interested, I'm just going to say this. It could be the majority of the letters that were written by him. There is a lot of debate as to what those quote-unquote letters are. All right? And I'll just save you essentially the 30 to 40 minutes of scouring through. But what we do know is Peter knows that Paul has written letters to the church. Those letters are speaking in the same manner that Peter is exhorting, and he is using the authority of Paul's teaching to accentuate his point that he's making here. And this is another neat thing. He continues on, and he says, Paul wrote with you the wisdom of God that gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of all these matters. Don't miss this. Peter is acknowledging the authority of Paul's teaching and saying that it's continual and it's consistent. That Paul isn't schizophrenic. He's not saying one thing here and then saying something completely contrary there. What he is saying is consistent and true. And then, watch this. I love this part. He then says... His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Trust me, Scripture is hard to understand. We will never fathom and understand all of the depths of Scripture because God is an infinite God. There are going to be things that we are going to have to look at and pray over and think through. End times eschatology, the book of Revelation, is this actually Russia? Is the Antichrist Putin? All of those things, I don't know. Right? But we should be moving and learning and growing and asking. And then watch this, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Oftentimes people will take scriptures to their own advantage, to their own desire, to their own fruition in order to prove a point that isn't made in scripture. That's why we do expository preaching. Not suppository preaching. <laughs> expository preaching. Looking into the word and looking at what is said there and then finding the main points by it. But then also, this is what I love, and for some of you that are, were just at the apologetics conference, this might be very interesting to you. He then says, as they do the other scriptures. Okay, don't miss this point. Right here, Peter is using a word, scriptures, that's found very sparsely and used very seriously to connote the authoritative word of God. So apologetically speaking, what we can see right here is 
that if Jesus died in AD 30 to 33, and this was written in 64 to 67 AD, and somewhere in here, the words of Paul were penned, Okay, so in this 30-year time frame, which it most likely wasn't, Paul's letters were written probably anywhere in between 40 to 60 AD. Within a short period of time, Peter is saying that those words are scriptural. They're included in the canon. It didn't take that long for Peter to say what Paul has penned is the word of God. That's huge, apologetically speaking. And so for those of you that were just at the apologetics conference talking about how do we know that the Bible is true, how can we rely on it, this is one small piece of how it was authoritatively driven through the apostolic teaching and preaching of Paul and acknowledged by the other apostle, Peter, and it was included in Scripture and authenticated quickly. And so friends, when we read the Word of God, and we find something that we don't like, and it pricks our heart, it's countercultural. it reveals sin, it reveals an area where we're trying to hide from Him. My loving question to you is this, do you twist it to say something else, or do you submit to it and ask God to drive you toward holiness. Not only should we not twist the scriptures to fit our own desires that we should submit to them, but then Peter also in verse 17 exhorts us that we should be on guard so that we are not carried away into lawlessness. Therefore, dear friends, again, dearly beloved, okay, those whom I deeply love, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. It's right there, antinomos, antinomianism. Come as you are, it's fine. Yes, absolutely, come as you are. Anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone can cry out to Jesus and be saved. But what he's saying here is after having been saved, we are not to live in an antinomos life, antinomianism, a heresy that was condemned in the early church. And so friends, are you living lawlessly? Are you taking salvation of Jesus and throwing the word of God away? Sure, I'll be saved. Sure, I want to get out of hell. Sure, I want Jesus for my life. But I don't want to be subject to the teachings of Scripture. That's lawlessness. And so, friends, lovingly, what I'm asking you is, are you submitting yourself to the Word of God? And are you on guard? Hence the title of today's message, Stay on Your Guard. Non-legalistically, please, like, I don't want you sitting here thinking, you, again, you've got to act like me, talk like me, you know, do what I do, say what I say, believe what I say, be a Denver Broncos fan, et cetera, et cetera, okay? 
Although for some of you that are Kansas City Chiefs fans, I definitely <laughs> question where your loyalty lies. <laughs> now that's sin. Forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But friends, are you living under the law? Being fulfilled, okay, we're no longer subject to it. The purpose of the law is to demonstrate our sin. Jesus has fulfilled the law. We have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we've not been saved to live in lawlessness. We've been saved to what? Be under the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is our Lord, then what Jesus as Lord says we should do. Out of a compelling of the heart. It's not works to save. It's saved by faith, but then because of the faith, we work, right, under law to be set apart for Jesus Christ. Oh boy, okay. Um, Got to keep going here. All right. Uh, final verse, 18, okay? Why do we do this? Why? why? What's compelling us to do this? And that's the final thing. For God's glory. For God's glory. I'm not doing what I do for my own glory. I'm not sitting up here because honestly, if it's for me and it's about myself, at some point, it's going to become self-consuming and it's going to become exhausting and it's going to become internal rather than external for a greater purpose, which is my Savior, Jesus. His glory and His kingdom. For God's glory, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That is what is so important here. He says, essentially, but grow. Okay? Grow in what? Subject. The grace. So, we have grace. Praise God for it. I want to make sure that you see that. All of you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how far you might feel that you are from God, no matter how many sins that you've committed, no matter how unworthy you might think you are, can come to the cross and cry out for a Savior. And Jesus died on the cross so that you can do so fully and wholly. And when you cry out to Him, you are saved. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the good news. And you're saved by grace. Unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't educate ourselves to it. We receive it. Awesome. Let's all go home now. No. Now that we have that grace... May we grow in it. Right there, that is the aspect of sanctification. May we be set apart. May we be more for God. May we grow in the grace and the knowledge, understanding of who He is. Well, where do we understand and get knowledge from? Here. Here. And as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God, we discover that He is a loving and long-suffering God. 
and because we discover that, and God gives good gifts to those who love him, we begin to say, you know what? The life that I wanted before for me, the life that I desired for my own, is no longer the life that I want because I am now directed by my Lord and I'm growing in his grace and I'm setting myself apart for him. And some days I stumble and some days I fall and some days I sin. But I go to God and I say, forgive me, Lord, and I repent. And God says, it's forgiven and it's forgotten because you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And you look and you say, thank you, God, because in a world that essentially judges people by three strikes and you're out, God continues to show his mercy and grace every time we stumble. But because of that and the love of God, May we grow in it. And so, friends, my question is this. Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And are you lovingly, challengingly making every effort to be found spotless and blameless? Friends, I can't stand in line for you. Jesus has, and Jesus will. But it's up to you, active voice, to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless before God. First Peter 2, 2, 3 says this, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that you may, follow this again, grow up, in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I've said before, and, and I think Francis Chan did an amazing thing. He's in the middle of a sermon and he's basically taking sips out of a baby bottle. And he's sitting there and he's preaching and he takes a sip out of a baby bottle and he keeps going and he takes another sip out of a baby bottle and then finally he says, does anything strike you as odd? And it's such a lovely illustrative point of the fact that, friends, are you in Jesus still sipping out of a baby bottle? Or are you growing in your salvation? Peter Davids, in the New Testament uh, commentary, essentially says this. If one is on one's guard, one will be aware of the danger and so not fall from the wonderful privileges and freedoms that he or she has received in Christ. Friends, what I'm going to tell you is in Jesus you are free. In Jesus you are liberated. But what did I just say? In Jesus... Not because of Jesus you are free to live how you want. In Jesus you are liberated. He is your Lord. This then, this then is the purpose of this book. Because you're free, right? Then he says it is a reminder in case the addressees have forgotten. Have you forgotten this? 
It's a wake-up call in case they are letting down their guard. Are you letting your guard down? Are you letting the world permeate what you think and what you believe? Are you slipping into lawlessness? It is a pointing out of the error of lawless men and women so that seeing the error and its danger, the addressees will recoil from it and remain secure. That's the whole point of this letter. And so the conclusion of this, friends, in view of Peter's concerns over false teaching and how we should live our lives as we anticipate Christ's return, the main point that I want to leave with you this morning is this, that we should make every effort to be found spotless and blameless as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior by submitting ourselves to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this word by Peter. We thank you for the strong exhortation that he gives. We thank you for the clarity from which he writes. And in that, Lord, I pray that it encourages our hearts, that it challenges our hearts. And Father, I pray possibly that it convicts our hearts. Father, may we recognize that conviction is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in us, driving us more toward you. And so, Lord, in a non-legalistic way, but in a relational one, when we come to you, when we are convicted, when you are driving us toward you, help us to submit to your word and then to bask in the freedom of you, your love, your mercy, and grace, knowing that you are long-suffering, wishing that none should perish. But Lord, in it, help us to also grow in the knowledge of you so that not if, but when false teaching comes, when people say, hey, it's fine. Jesus died so that you can be free and live the life that you want, how you want, and when you want. You can lovingly say that's not what scripture teaches. And so in that, Lord, I pray for each of us today that the Holy Spirit would work, guide, and direct our hearts and our lives to draw us closer to you so that we might be a reflection of your love, your mercy, and your grace. And that in that, we would go out and give the good news, the message of the gospel to the world that so desperately needs it. We thank you that you have made your promises. We thank you that your promises have come true. We thank you that we know that because of those promises that have been made, that have come true, those that you have given, which are yet to be, will indeed come to fruition. And in that, may it bring peace and rest and comfort to our hearts as we recognize that as the world turns, as the world continues, this is not our home. We are destined for you and your kingdom, where there is no more hurt, no more sin, no more pain, And the presence of God is what we radiate and worship because you are there with us. Lord, may that turn our eyes heavenly. And as we turn our eyes heavenly, may that then be the drive to move in a manner as we make effort to become spotless and blameless before you, giving us great peace and rest in the promises that we have in our Savior Jesus. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Friends, uh, we are going to move.